If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 648. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, click on that super thanks button under this video. If you like the video, you want to throw a few pennies my way. Also go to McClanahanAcademy.com. It's the best way to support the show. You can purchase one of my 20 plus classes there, and that keeps this podcast free of charge. You can also go to thebrianmcclanahan.com. While you're there, click on that support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way and give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly, and that is brionmcclanahan.com. You can also click on the shop tab while you're at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I want you engaged in the show. And today is a listener-generated episode. I do appreciate those. And it's on the Supreme Court. We've been on this idea of originalism this week. So it's a great way to uh, wrap up the week. One thing I'll say about this, what I find fascinating about this, this whole thing with the Supreme Court right now. Leftists are extremely worried about this because they see their grip on the power structure in America quickly fading. Because what has happened, of course, over the last, say, half century is that the court has decided to become an extra legislative body of the federal government. Now, this piece is fascinating because these individuals think that this is perfectly legal. What the court is doing, though, to invalidate, say, Roe v. Wade or to uh, expand the understanding of the Second Amendment is illegal. So uh, the left has decided now that the court is bad. Of course, they want to pack the court so they can make it an extra legal legislative body again, but only for them. You see, again, undergirding everything the left does is power. They want power, and they're going to do anything they can. I saw a headline, Black Americans now are more supportive of expanding the court, right? Court packing. This is really court packing. Now, leftists use the term court packing now to describe the situation where Republicans put conservative justices on the court to fill vacancies. That's somehow court packing. Real court packing is expanding the court, expanding the number of justices on the court so you can put your own on there, right? That's real court packing. We've lost the whole definition of language, too. I mean, none of this stuff matters anymore. The left is so obvious in their pursuit of power that they're willing to do anything and say anything to get it. So, what I, again, I find fascinating in this article is that the, the leftists are now deciding that the court is bad, even though they've used it for half a century to enforce their will. And even in this piece, they say, well, the court was good when it was actually doing this, but it's bad now that it's doing this. Now, the other thing I find fascinating about this piece, and it's in the Atlantic, and I'm going to read it, was that essentially what they're doing here is saying that um, they're taking a very Jeffersonian stance on the court, at least ostensibly taking a Jeffersonian stance, because they're making the claim that the court was never designed to be the final arbiter in all these different things, right? It wasn't designed to be this institution that decided 
what was supreme law of the land. It, it was never designed to be that way. It was never designed to be this political institution. Well, that's fascinating to me because this is exactly what the left made it over the last half century and, and longer, right? So these two authors are complaining about the, co the court in the post-bellum period, right? They're complaining about the court and what it did really since uh, Reconstruction ended. And then, but they praised the court during the very, uh, in the middle of the 20th century when it did things that they liked, and then it's going back the other way, they said. You know, it's something they don't like. So again, what they don't really like is now that the conservatives, quote-unquote, theoretically control the court, they're not going to get their wishes anymore. The court is a political institution. We all know that. I mean, heck, Thomas Jefferson was warning against the power of the court back in 1803. And Jeffersonians said the court wasn't the final arbiter in the early 19th century all the time. But you see, they ignore all of that because in that particular case, arguing against the court would have put a very conservative spin on the United States. All right, so let's get into this piece. It's by Nicholas Bowie and Daphna Renan. So the title is, The Supreme Court is not supposed to have this much power. Well, I mean, that's intriguing. I agree. Supreme Court shouldn't have any of this power. But it shouldn't have any of the power that you want it to have, too. And see, they don't these, these two authors don't really understand federalism. They don't understand the original Constitution. They don't understand what the powers of the general government should have been and the powers of the state's government, state government should have been. They don't understand any of that. So the piece says, It's June again, that, that time of year when Americans wake up each morning and wait for the Supreme Court to resolve our deepest political disagreements, to decide what the Constitution says about our bodily autonomy our power to avert climate change, and our ability to protect children from guns. The nation turns not to members of Congress elected by us, but to five oracles in robes. Now, look at what, a right, somebody on the right could write this too. They could talk about uh, the power over marriage, or um, they could talk about, uh, you know, anything, right? Any, any social issue they could bring up here. Those on the right could do the exact same thing. And I agree with them that this is a problem. I actually agree with Bowie and Renan that this is a problem. Well, you know who should be handling this problem? Not the general government at all, because it doesn't have power to do any of these things. It doesn't have the power to say uh, anything about guns or climate change or marriage. It shouldn't be turning to members of Congress at all. It should be turning to the state legislatures, because they're the ones that actually handle this problem. And I'll give you an example of how these people are hypocritical. California, remember, um, invalidated... Affirmative action. The people of California made that illegal. And of course, the federal courts have stepped in and they've knocked that back. Because you see, that's okay for the federal courts to do that. The people of California, democracy, decided this. Ward Connolly took a lot of heat for this. Ward Connolly, by the way, is, is African-American, but he didn't like affirmative action. So the people of California decided, but that... That's illegal. And the federal courts were used to knock it down. Now, um, again, marriage. The, state, the states had decided on this. The states had decided on these issues through, demo through democratically elected legislatures. But no, no, no. You can't do that. That's not democracy. The federal government should be handling that. 
On the other hand, if the states decide things like Roe v. Wade situation there, well, that's that's the states did decide that, and the federal court knocked that down. You see, what the federal courts are doing in all of these left-wing things is knocking down real democracy, more direct democracy in many ways than what the progressives like. In fact, when you look at what happened in California with affirmative action, that was a proposition that was put on the ballot for the people of California to decide, and they knocked it down. Not a legislature, but the people of California. So where is that anti-democracy? The court deciding on that is anti-democracy. But this is what these, these two authors are going to say, that we need more democracy. Well, when democracy doesn't go their way, though, they want the courts to knock it down. They say this annual observance of judicial supremacy, the idea that the Supreme Court has the final say about what our Constitution allows, is an old affliction for a nation that will close the month ready to celebrate our independence from an unelected monarch. From one perspective, our acceptance of this supremacy reflects a sense that our political system is simply too broken to address the most urgent questions that we confront. But it would be a mistake to see judicial supremacy as a mere symptom of our uh, politics and not a cause. So they're saying the court is the reason why we have all this discord in America. Because the court, it's not a symptom. It's a cause of the problem. Well, I, I could agree with that. Nationalism is a cause. National authority, Congress, and the Supreme Court, and too much centralization of power, it's all a cause. If you, I agree. If you want to have more political peace in America, decentralize. But that's not what these people are advocating. It's, it's interesting. They're saying the right things in certain ways. They just don't understand what they're saying. Because what they're saying is we need more nationalism, more centralized control. Just let Congress do it and not the courts. They just don't like the court knocking down their pet projects because they think they have a majority in Congress. They do right now. But what if Congress passed legislation like the Defense of Marriage Act, right? Well, that was the Congress and the Supreme Court knocked that down. So which one do you like, right? You want more centralization when you're in power in Congress and less court, but when you're not in power in Congress, you want more court and less Congress. Again, the inconsistency and the hypocrisy is all over this thing. Contrary to what most people have, many people have come to believe, judicial supremacy is not in the Constitution. It does not date from the founding era. Hmm. Well, I actually agree with that. Uh, This is why I wrote the last half of the book and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. It's all about the court and how it abuses its power. I mean, I agree fundamentally, with this particular position. But then again, they go off the rails in how they talk about it. It took hold of American politics only after the Civil War. Well, that's an amazing statement. So judicial supremacy did not exist before the Civil War. Wow. So what about John Marshall? What about Joseph Story? I mean, John Marshall certainly was interested in, quote-unquote, judicial supremacy. In fact, in the Cohen's v. Virginia case, he makes it very clear that there is federal and judicial supremacy, that the states could not beat down the federal courts. So it's, again here, these people are so stupid, they don't realize what they're saying is they're cutting out half of the story. It's only been since the post-Civil War period that we've had judicial supremacy. And it's only been... 
because of civil rights cases. This is what they say. It took hold of American politics only after the Civil War when the court overruled Congress's judgment that the Constitution demanded civil rights and voting laws. Well, no, it didn't. Again, Cohen's v. Virginia, we'll just use that. Uh, I mean, heck, how about Marbury v. Madison? How about McCulloch v. Maryland? I mean, McCulloch v. Maryland was asserting not just judicial supremacy, but federal supremacy over everything. Hunter versus Martin Lisi, I mean, all these things, right? So you have so many cases in the quote-unquote founding period, because Marshall was a founder, right? So, I mean, he's a founding father, that were creating not just judicial supremacy, but federal supremacy. And that's the real issue, right? That is the real issue and what's going on here. People are resisting because they don't want the center telling them what to do that doesn't reflect their political culture. It doesn't matter the issue. This is what people are upset about, left and right. But here you have these lefties saying, you know, we need more centralization, need more Congress to do more of this. That's going to create all kinds of problems. They don't see the disease really of centralization. The court has spent the 150 years since sapping our national representatives of the power to issue national rules. No, it hasn't. They issue national rules all the time. What you don't like is the national rules that you think are bad. Like, again, the Defense of Marriage Act. So here, the the court, uh, the Congress was issuing a national rule, and you didn't like that national rule. <laughs> so you wanted to knock that out. But then you like a national rule that contradicts that national rule. Well, what about the people of the states have decided this issue, and they just well, I don't leave it to the people of the states? Well, no, no, no can't do that because it doesn't fit with our national agenda. These judicial decisions have destroyed guardrails that national majorities deem vital to a functional multiracial democracy, including protecting the right to vote and curbing the influence of money in politics. Again, a national. We don't have a national democracy in America. We have a federal republic. They don't understand the fundamental structure of the United States. It hasn't really changed. If you go read Raoul Berger's Government by Judiciary, again, he's complaining about the problem that we don't have a national government and the judiciary has done everything it can to nationalize everything. This is the issue. Again, last half of how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America is all about this particular topic, but pointing out that the issue here is that these justices have interpreted widely interpreted the 14th Amendment to do something it never intended to do. It was never intended to do what they've done with it. Incorporation here really is the enemy. Even worse, the court's assertion of the power to invalidate federal laws has stripped Americans of the expectation, once widely shared, that the most important interpretations of the Constitution are expressed not by judicial decree, but by the participation of we the people in enacting national legislation. So now these lefties are complaining about the court's power to invalidate federal laws. <laughs> amazing, right? Absolutely amazing. These people are so, again, these two authors are so stupid, they don't realize the hypocrisy of the entire thing. Their entire basis is built on federal court decisions that invalidated democratically elected legislatures to enact legislation that was perfectly constitutional under the original Constitution. This is what their entire basis is. 
In the decades before the Civil War, when national parties violently contested the constitutionality of slavery west of the Mississippi, the center of gravity was Congress. As the historian James Oakes recounts, when a border state senator proposed asking the Supreme Court to decide the issue in 1848, other senators ridiculed his ideas. Implausible. Well, why? Because that was an issue that was left to the states. And they weren't really talking about um, the... They were talking about issue of slavery in federal territory. Right? So they say that. It's federal territory. Well, Congress... I mean, the, the whole issue here was, did Congress have the authority to do this? Right? And so... Yeah, okay, let the Supreme Court decide. Well, Congress decided. See, this is the funny thing. Congress, they want Congress to decide these things. When Congress did decide these things through the Kansas-Nebraska Act, and which didn't go the way of the abolitionists, well, then they wanted, and the Supreme Court decided in favor of that. Well, then the Supreme Court's bad, but they decided and, and upheld a national solution to a problem. At least it was, a, it was a bad solution. And the new course that I'm working on at McClanahan Academy, Reading Abraham Lincoln, is going to get into this. The Constitution was interpreted as variously as the Bible, Senator John B. Hale of New Hampshire responded. White Southerners believe the Constitution carries slavery with it, while Northerners constructed, construed the Constitution to secure freedom. So, John P. Hale, all oh, the constitutions have got all these wild interpretations. You can't have the condom. You can't do this. As Hale and his contemporaries appreciated, resolving such a fundamental national disagreement could never turn on a court's answer to which interpretation was more correct. Rather, the winning interpretation would depend on whether adherents could build sufficient political majorities to control the national government. The Supreme Court did attempt to decide the question in its infamous 1857 Dred Scott decision, interpreting the Constitution to hold that the federal government lacked the power to abolish slavery anywhere in the United States. Well, um, in the States, yeah, this has always been true. The question was whether they had the power to do anything about it in the territories. Lincoln, of course, in his House Divided speech, which again I get into in, in the Reading Lincoln class, um, and other people said, well, this is going to mean that you can't abolish slavery in the states. Well, that's not what it meant, because that's not what Southerners said at all. But rather than accept this novel assertion of judicial supremacy over Congress, the Republican Party responded with defiance. <laughs> but wait, um, so these people are complaining about the Supreme Court, but Congress, they were upholding a position that Congress really had no power to do anything in the territories um, and or they were upholding, say, the Kansas-Nebraska Act or this type of thing. The people, democratically, the people could decide this issue. The people, right? The people could decide what was going on here. These people say we're for the people, but if the people decided the wrong way, then we're not for the people. Which one is it going to be? Do you believe in democracy or not? So they're saying we believe in congressional supremacy. Well, Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which is what Lincoln was more opposed to than anything else, because it actually said, okay, well, we're going to supersede the Missouri Compromise, and we're going to legislate for the territories here in this way. And, of course, uh, the Republicans didn't like that. But they didn't have the majority. Indeed, Abraham Lincoln successfully ran for president on a platform of repudiating the court with national legislation. 
In his inaugural address, he remarked that the candid, candid citizen must confess that the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the, of the Supreme Court, then the people will have ceased to be their own rulers, having to that extent practically resigned their government into the hands of that eminent tribunal. Well, again, I mean, you can agree with Lincoln here. Um, he's complaining about what's happened with Congress. He complained about it in 1854 and 1855 and into 1858. He complained about it, right? And Douglas, what's interesting about Stephen Douglas, who wrote the Kansas-Nebraska Act, was actually complaining about it too. This is the Freeport Doctrine. He's saying, well, look, I don't, I don't care what, Congress, what the Supreme Court said. I still believe that Congress can legislate for these things. And the people of the territories can do it too. It's still democratic. Through the Civil War and Reconstruction era that followed, the politically dominant Republicans in Congress enacted legislation to build a multiracial democracy in the United States for the first time. Some of these laws boldly overturned the court, including statues in 1862 and 1866 that began the abolition of slavery and recognized the citizenship of black people. Um, so, 1862, of course, you're looking at the origins of the Emancipation Proclamation and uh, also the Confiscation Acts, right? So this is where all these people, this is James Oakes. I mean, it's all, they, they cited James Oakes already. James Oakes is incorrect about these things. But regardless, um, the Emancipation Proclamation, one Supreme Court judge said, was unconstitutional. Well, of course, they wouldn't like that. But this guy was an abolitionist. And he said, you just can't do it. It's not in the Constitution to allow the federal government to legislate on this issue. It's not there. This has to be a state issue. Others prevented the court from uh, retaliating against Congre Congre Congress's interpretation of the Constitution, such as legislation stripping the court of jurisdiction over certain matters. The court retaliating. So this, see, this is the court. It's not the Constitution. If the court upholds the Constitution, that's a problem. It's the court retaliating. How about it's the Constitution retaliating, right? How about it's you're doing unconstitutional things and the court saying, well, you can't do that. In fact... In fact, this is what Patrick Henry said he hoped would happen. This is what the founding generation, with federal legislation, said they hoped would happen because it's the only thing they had, unless it was state action. And, of course, states could do this. But then, of course, you knock all that down, too. Still others enlisted the court in the, protect, in the project of enforcing con Congress's congressional judgments. Acts in 1870 and 1871 instructed federal courts to enforce the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments against recalcitrant state officials, while Acts in 1870 and 1875 tasked judges with banning voting restrictions, lynch mobs, and racial discrimination. Only after Republicans lost control of Congress in 1875 was the court able to enforce its contrary interpretations of the Constitution to devastating effect. In the civil rights cases of 1883 and related cases, the court refused to enforce federal civil rights laws on the theory that the newly enacted 13th and 14th Amendments gave Congress no power against private racial violence or discrimination in public accommodations. Well, here's the thing. It didn't. And we know this because if there was really federal uh, an effort here by the federal government to do these things, they wouldn't have had segregated schools in Washington, D.C. We know that these things were very narrowly intended. You can't have slavery, uh, citizenship, 
is not is not meant to uh, the Fourteenth Amendment is not in, intended to incorporate the Bill of Rights. We know this it was talked about. So you're expanding federal power beyond what was intended by these amendments. For the next half century, as part of what historian W. E. Du Bois called the counter-revolution of property, the court condemned the Reconstruction Congress as a group of unprincipled fanatics. Well, they were actually right about that. And it invented new doctrines that authorized the court to invalidate federal legislation that it thought went too far toward interfering with white business interests. It was during this period that judicial supremacy took hold as a dominant ideology in the United States. Incorrect. Judicial supremacy was already there. It was there since the Marshall Court. And it depended on who you were, on whether you believed in it or not, and what time and what party. If your party was in power, you didn't believe in it. If your party was in power, you believed in it. This is what John C. Calhoun talked about with the concurrent majority. This bears repeating judicial supremacy as an institutional arrangement brought to cultural ascendancy by white people who wanted to undo Reconstruction and the rise of organized labor that had followed. That's not true. That's not true at all. But again, progressives are trying to put their spin on it because they're upset that the court may not go their way anymore. And that makes sense, as judicial supremacy can harness the power of an entrenched minority and use that power to undermine the more democratic legislative branch. Or how about the states? <laughs> I mean, don't we believe in minority government? We believe minorities have rights. They can block things that are detrimental to them. I mean, this is this is what we believe, right? I mean, don't you believe minorities have the... I mean, look, what happened in the 20th century is minorities were being uh, shielded and protected by the court. Not, not majorities, but minorities. And now when you go another way, I mean, then you can't do that anymore. Decades after the court in Marbury v. Madison first anticipated that it might disagree with Congress about a federal law's constitutionality, the justices finally convinced skeptics of the need for this authority by disempowering Congress and unraveling its legislative efforts to establish political equality. In the next 150 years since Reconstruction, the thrust of judicial supremacy has continued to be revanchist. Through the 21st century, the justices overwhelmingly have exercised their claim of supremacy over Congress to insulate the wealthy and powerful from federal labor laws, federal voting laws, federal civil rights laws, federal campaign finance laws, and federal health care laws. Well, how about it's not the court that's doing that? How about it's just that Congress was exceeding its power? I mean, do you ever think about that? That there's no constitutional basis for any of these things? Decisions such as Citizens United and Shelby County are typical examples of how the court has overruled Congress to make it harder for ordinary people to participate in American democracy on equal terms. But their damage goes beyond that, because the limits of our constitutional imagination can extend no further than the opinions of those who happen to sit on the court. Judicial supremacy has also impoverished what we think is possible through democratic politics and through organizing for political change at the national level. Again, the disease is nationalism. It's not the court. It's that you're trying to do things that aren't structurally there, that you want to thwart the real nature of the general government, which is not national. It's federal. Rather than look to the court to glimpse some fundamental truth from scant constitutional texts, Americans ought to demand that their elected representatives engage in the hard work of national lawmaking. Congress must act, even if it means overriding the interpretations of the court and reshaping its jurisdiction. This is You could have said this in the mid-90s when Republicans were saying what we need to do is uh, pull the power of the court to do X, Y, and Z. I mean, when, when Obamacare was upheld as constitutional, no liberals were complaining about it then. 
No progressives were saying, hey, wait, the court has overstepped its bounds here. But conservatives are saying, you know what we need to do? We need to get rid of, uh, we need we need to uh, take out the appellate jurisdiction. We need to cut all these circuit courts. This is the problem. Encouragingly, members of the House have recently passed bills to enforce their understanding of what federal laws our nation demands and our Constitution permits. No, no, no. Including, repro- including reproductive freedom and voting rights. Not what the Constitution permits. No, no, no. It's what they think the Constitution permits. And again, this goes back to well, Calhoun, 1837. He said Congress can do anything they want because there's no block to it unless you have the states being able to do it. You can't, you can't rely on the Supreme Court because the court is open to you know all kinds of people. Now, Calhoun did talk about judicial supremacy. He wasn't. He didn't have a problem with it. He actually said it needs to do some of these things. But what we also need is the states. But the bills have stalled in the Senate for two reasons that remain within its control. One, the filibuster, which will be will be abolished as soon as fifty senators recognize that a permanently incapacitated Senate is far more destructive than an active Senate that might one day be controlled by an opposing party. But the other obstacle might be more pernicious. A fear among legislators that there is no point in to legislating if the court will simply invalidate anything Congress achieves. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's it. Yet, as the Reconstruction Congress recognized, anything the court has the power to do comes from federal statutes passed by Congress. Statutes that a majority of Congress always has the power to amend. Well, this is true. Conflicts over constitutional interpretation are not really over who has the best understanding of words inscribed in an old document. They're about who or which actors in our system of national government can deliver on a particular and inherently contested meaning in the constitution of our current times. It is a question of political leadership, not legalism. Now, this is where it gets funny, because here these people have complained the entire time about um, the Supreme Court, but then they actually praise the Supreme Court. Why? Because the Supreme Court upheld unconstitutional congressional edicts, right? So when the Supreme Court does what they want, they're okay with it. When the Supreme Court, though, doesn't do what they want, then we got to get rid of it. So you see, it's not really about anything but power. Here's the paragraph that shows that. There is nothing unconstitutional about Congress reasserting its authority to define the nation's highest law. The experience of Reconstruction brings into view this firmly grounded practice. In fact, a surviving remnant of the Reconstruction Congress's work today codified as 42 U.S.C. Section 1983, has underwritten some of the most famous cases in modern constitutional law. In Section 1983, Congress instructed federal courts to stop state or local officials from depriving anyone of their rights, privileges, or immunities secured by the Constitution. Section 1983 is what Oliver Brown invoked when he challenged Kansas's segregation laws and Brown v. Board of Education, what John Rowe invoked to challenge Texas's abortion law and Roe v. Wade, and what James Ogerfell invoked when he challenged Ohio's same-sex marriage ban in Ogilfoe v. Hodges. While these landmark cases invalidated state laws, the justices were following not undermining Congress's orders. So it's okay for the, for, the, for the court to undermine democratically elected legislation from the states. It's okay to do that. It's okay for the Congress to invalidate democracy there. That's okay because they're doing it the right way. Now, the Constitution would not have been ratified if the founding generation thought that the Congress, at the, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court would invalidate state laws, that it had a negative on state laws. This is, they're praising something that would have led to the defeat of the Constitution. In fact, John Rutledge made that clear. 
The decisions overturning, overruling state interpretations of the Constitution don't represent judicial supremacy, but rather Congress's ability to make and enforce national Constitution commitments. So this isn't about judicial supremacy. No, no, no. This is about Congress doing the right thing. No, not really. It's about, it's about in unconstitutional federal legislation. Congressional checks in the Supreme Court are also very different from the calls for nullification by slaveholders before the Civil War, their descendants during the Civil Rights Movement, and Texas legislators today. The Civil War itself resolved that the representatives of states must enforce their constitutional interpretations, not by defying the government created by the Constitution, but by participating in it. Well, that's amazing because, you know, actually, and, and I'll just go with the lefties on this one, um, Southerners were upset about Northern nullification efforts. And Lincoln even made this clear. He didn't agree with that. He thought that the Fugitive Slave Law should have been enforced. That there shouldn't have been a, an effort by Northern states to not do that. For the past two centuries, Congress has been the branch of the federal government where our democracy's pursuit of equal justice under law has most often been realized. The question is not whether some commitments, abolition, reproductive freedom, racial equality are worth making supreme and constructive of a national American identity. Rather, the question is who gets to decide the, the content of those commitments for all Americans, the 50 states, a five-justice majority, or our national legislature. So again, what they're saying here is, is the question is, do we have national supremacy or not? Look at what they just framed it as. The 50 states, which is democratic, a five-justice majority, which is not, or a national legislature, which, by the way, is not, because you're invalidating the, the will of a good part of the American population. If the court is today eviscerating those very constitutional commitments through its case law, Congress should enact or amend federal statutes to advance a different understanding of a national a nation built on democratic justice. It should reshape the court's ability to intervene in these disputes, including by restricting the court's authority to set aside federal legislation. And it should conscript the court in enforcing federal commitments when resistant state officials brazenly declare that the national government has no jurisdiction to protect Americans from their parochial rule. So look at what they just said here, okay? What we need to do is have the Congress come in and say, you can invalidate state laws, but you can't invalidate national laws. They flip the entire Constitution on its head because this is exactly what the founding generation said should not happen. Which one is it, right? The thing stopping Congress from reversing such wrong-headed decisions the court issues this month, therefore, isn't the Constitution. It's our fair to demand more from our elected representatives. The promise of genuinely multiracial democracy will fade if Americans are unwilling to embrace structural reforms that can make our policies and our politics more responsive to majority rule. How Congress allocates the power to interpret the Constitution should be the heart of these reforms. We simply cannot build a better politics if we don't reclaim the authority of Congress to resolve our most fundamental disagreements. Rather than allow a handful of us to define the Constitution's meaning in a mystical ritual each June, the rest of us should define it with the hard, messy work of American politics year-round. But only if it's the Congress doing this and not the states. They don't believe in democracy at the state level. No, no, no. Not even direct democracy like a referendum or an initiative. No, that's not good enough. It has to be Congress with a slim majority. I mean, you're talking about in Congress right now, in the House of Representatives, it's such a slim majority that you can't really even say there's a mandate. The Senate's tied 50-50. So half the population doesn't want what these idiots are selling. Yet, that's supposed to be the hard work. 
What these people don't like is anyone objecting to their power. They want to flip the Constitution on its head. They want to flip the understanding of the Constitution from the founding on its head. And they want to enforce nationalism, which is going to make everything more messy. It will make it more messy. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next week. See you then.